Amen. You guys can grab a seat. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip with me to Luke chapter 22 is where we're going to be uh, and where we have been for a while. But Luke chapter 22, uh, last week Ricky preached for me, which I heard he did a great job. Uh, he also rode in on a scooter, which was not funny. It's highly offensive. Ricky, I'm looking at you. Thank you for that. Uh, but yeah, I think so, a lot of times we kind of forget what's happening. Uh, so last week I was in Milledgeville because in Milledgeville, uh, we have another church. So I don't know if you guys know that, but um, back in August, we planted the branch Milledgeville. Um, so I got to go down there. My wife and I and our family got to go down this weekend and um, just watch all that God's doing. Um, their services start at 1030. So they're just now kicking off with, uh, gosh, I don't know how many people were there, 60 um, new families. They've opened up a children's space because they're growing in families. I mean, things are just phenomenal. Um, so I would encourage all of you, if you have a weekend off at any point, um, go down and check them out in Milledgeville. Uh, but our, our goal, our vision is bigger than Milledgeville. It's 10 churches in the next 10 years. Um, and I want everyone to go ahead and pull out your phones, write this down. On April 7th, we have a huge announcement rolling out for um, the vision in the future and the direction of the Branch Network. So uh, April 7th, make sure you get here, invite your family, your friends, uh, not your mom but maybe your dad. Bring him here. Just kidding. I like your mom. It's fine. Oh, I, let, me, let me preface this real fast because I've heard as we grow in, in new people that some people don't understand my sarcasm or my humor, or my dryness. Um, so I've been told I have big eyes, so I'm going to take this to my advantage. If you see me like wink, that was a joke, okay? So just we're all on the same page. That way we, we can not get offended by my humor. Cool? So you can bring your moms. So that's fine. April 7th, we'll start that. Um, Luke 22, everyone there? because we've got a lot of work to do. It's going to be a fun morning. You ready? Cool. Um, I, as we get started, I think I've told you guys this before. Uh, I don't trust many people. Does anyone kind of deal with this? Um, so I've been working through, I've been going to counseling, uh, something that, that my wife and I talked about, the elders, you did is important to go. And um, so my first day in counseling, I told the lady, said, listen, you just have to understand, uh, I'm, I'm a jerk. I have jerk tendencies. So as we're doing this whole counseling thing, I know you're professional, but, but just know there's going to be some jerk tendencies coming out. Um, and it was, I think it was the first session she looked at me and said, yeah, you really are a jerk. I'm like I, I told you, and that's not nice, counselor lady. Um, <laughs> I can say it, you can't say it. And so a couple weeks ago, I had to take this really long test, and uh, here are two results that popped out for me that, that we talked about. Uh, I am 98% in the hostile range, all right? So what that means is I'm, I have four kids, and I'm about to blow at any moment. So 98% in the hostile range, and I'm 11% in the sympathetic range. So if you thought you wanted to meet with me for counseling, just don't do it, like, there's, there's going to be no beneficial counseling happening. I'm just going to tell you to stop and get over it because I have zero sympathy in my bones. So 98% hostile, 11% sympathetic. Um, my wife asks me all the time, how in the world am I a pastor? And I have no idea. Um, but then the counselor looked at me and said, you probably have a hard time trusting people, don't you? I'm like, well, yeah. But like, how does hostility and sympathy have anything to do with trust? And then she said what all great counselors do, right? Like, you need to go home and you need to think of every childhood memory you can remember um, and try to see and find a time if there's some, some big moment or small moment, some like huge incident or just some small conversation where you started to lose trust in people. I'm like, that's what I pay you for. You find that and then tell me I'm not going to go do the work. Um, so here's what I know. Time out real fast. Um, all of you can hear that. Oh, that's a good sermon introduction or it's subpar sermon introduction, whatever you want to say. Um, 
my mom is sitting over here and she's going to be beating herself up the entire time thinking that she's the one that made me lose trust. So mom, it's not your fault. Now my brother is sitting here too. Isaac, that was your fault. All the childhood memories where I don't trust people came from my brother. So um, problem solved on that one. Uh, but as I started doing this research, trying to figure out what it is in me that just doesn't allow me to trust, I came across this quote that I think kind of opened up my mind to some things. That trust involves the juxtaposition of people's loftiest hopes and aspirations and their deepest worries and fears. So trust, trust is this juxtaposition of people's loftiest hopes and aspirations with their deepest worries and fears. But as I start, I'm a statistical guy, as I started looking at statistics, it's not just me that has a trust problem, our entire culture does. But we live in a world of social competition, this came from a Forbes magazine, in a world where trust is eroding. And here's a couple examples. Uh, take government, 73% trust in 1958 to 24% trust in 2014. Trust in each other, because government were like, oh yeah, that's government. Trust in each other has been in a steady de decline since the 70s. 48.1% in 1972 to 31% in 2014. And it said, I mean, there's not enough statistical data yet, but millennials and Gen Zs are the least trusting people of, ever, of all time, as far as statistics go back. This newest generation, I think social media has a lot to do with it because everyone puts their best foot forward and we know you're all full of it, right? I think divorce, as the divorce rate goes up, trust goes down because we see the, the core fundamental trust in our family deteriorate in front of our eyes. So there's a bunch of different reasons to it, but, but what I want to study this morning, I think the Bible lends itself to, is that if we can't trust one another, we cannot be naive enough to think that we're not taking that same lack of trust towards Jesus. That we can't say, oh yeah, statistics show that if you're between 17 and 35, that you are the least trusting generation ever. But that has nothing to do with my faith. And what we're going to see this morning has everything to do with our faith. Luke 22, we're going to pick it up in verse 35. Luke 22, pick it up in verse 35. Morgan, you did awesome this morning. Yeah. Luke 22, 35. And he said to them, this is Jesus talking, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. This is his disciples talking back. They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise, likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Verse 38, and they said, look, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, that is enough. Now there's a couple things as a, as a setting that we need to understand. Um, one, this is the last thing. As far as Lucan doctrine goes, the book of Luke, this is the last conversation, full conversation that Jesus has with his disciples before he goes up to the garden, before he gets betrayed, arrested, murdered. This is it. This is the last recorded thing in Luke that he tells his boys. So we just have to let that set in. I mean, the last thing that Jesus tells his guys is this, get, get your knapsack, get your sword, get your money bag, get ready. This is it. The second thing is there's not a lot of people that preach, that study. I mean, I had a commentary that literally skipped over this whole three verses, which was kind of disappointing because 
what, what do you write a commentary for if you don't even comment on the Bible? So um, not a lot of sermons have been preached on this, but I think this is going to be huge for us as a church. And lastly, um, John 15, we're going to spend a lot of time in Luke 22 and John 15. So if you want to go ahead and flip over there, uh, maybe get a communication card, get your finger, get your little ribbon in your Bible, something, uh, hold your place there because we're going to be going back and forth a little bit. So here we are, the upper room, Passover has been celebrated, the last Passover, the first communion. Ricky preached last week that they're already starting to argue about who's the greatest disciple. And this is the last thing that Jesus teaches them before he leaves for his death. So let's kind of examine this a little bit and figure out what it has to do with us today. Pick it back up in verse 35. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. So here we are, Luke 23, moments, I mean, hours from his death, and Jesus is making them look back to Luke chapter 9 and Luke chapter 10 when he sent his disciples out. He sent the 72 out uh, on these little short-term mission trips. I'm going to read through Luke 9:3 real fast. And Jesus said to them, take nothing for your journey, no sta staff, no bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. Luke 10, 10 says this, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Go on your way before I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves, carrying no money back, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. So what he's telling his disciples in this upper room is complete contradictory to what he sent them out in Luke chapter 9 and Luke 10. Back then he was saying, I'm sending you out, take nothing with you, uh, don't go into houses that you're not supposed to, you'll know where to go, people will take care of you, people will provide for you. But now in Luke chapter 22, he's totally contradicting all of that. So he's looking, he's making disciples look back, because we all see hindsight in 2020, right? I mean, and we can all look back, and Jesus is stirring up their trust in him. He said, look, look back. When I sent you out, did, was everything taken care of? Were you always provided? Did people receive you well? Okay, well, if you could trust me back then, trust me now when I'm telling you, get stuff ready to go. Because things are going to start changing for us a little bit. It's hard to depend on other people, isn't it? I mean, as a church planner, I'm, I'm around a bunch of church planners, and the way, I don't know if you guys know this, but the way that church plants typically start is the lead guy or a team of people raise every bit of salary, every bit of rent, every bit of equipment. They, they go out to raise a bunch of money. And it's embarrassing that not being able to provide for yourself. It's hard asking people to support the ministry. It's hard, I mean, I know you see the TV preachers do that so well constantly, uh, but it's, it's hard to do that. So he did this with the disciples in Luke 9 and Luke 10. Don't take anything. Watch me provide for you. But he's changing. He said, if, I, if you could trust me back then, trust me now. But things are going to start to look different. So we're about to see why that is. Verse 36. And he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has a no sword sell his cloak and buy one. So we can see the first part of verse 36, but now. So that was one category, but now we're walking in to a new category. And you can just see him, and we'll see in a second the confusion that's coming in the disciples' minds of going, but, but you just told us something totally different, but now, like, what, what is changing? What is happening? 
Why, why do I have to, all these last three years I've been walking with you, Jesus, everything has always been taken care of. Why do I have to get all this stuff? And, and let me address the sword real quick because there are some crazy theories out there on the World Wide Web of why he wanted them to get swords. We talked about last semester in MCs, and, and we'll see it now. Good hermeneutics means don't just take one passage for face value, but what does this one passage have to do with the greater scheme of Scripture, right? Um, so in those days, I mean, they didn't have restaurants. They didn't have, uh, you had to prepare everything. You had to take care of yourself. So it's commonplace for a man to carry just a little dagger-style sword to, to work as a tool to cut your own meat, to cut up food. Um, the, the robbers would always take people, uh, take people's stuff on the roads back and forth. So a little bit of protection. So this wasn't like some Civil War sword. It's like, let's go do this. It was just a little self-protection knife that they would take with them. So he's saying, get clothes, get food, get money, get everything that a normal person, a normal Jew in our day would carry. Get ready to take care of yourself. Get ready to provide for yourself. Because, But now there's a new category coming. Verse 37. For I tell you that Scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. What Jesus is doing here is he's quoting Isaiah 53. You don't have to flip back. I'll read it for us. But he's quoting what was already said about him back in Isaiah, Isaiah 53. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. So he's making this prophecy come true within, right in front of the disciples. But what does this mean? What does this look like? That he was making, he, he was being numbered with the transgressors. So we see a couple days before Palm Sunday or Palm Monday, technically, but as Jesus was being ushered into Jerusalem, right, and everyone was singing, Hosanna, Hosanna. I mean, y'all probably played this growing up. You had the little palm and like, yeah, you had your headdress and your little three-year-old self was like, oh, look at me. I'm can. That's what was happening, but in a larger scale. But those same people on Monday that were screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest, are in a few hours going to sing, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Because just in a few hours, the Pharisees are going to win, right? They're going to be able to show that Jesus is a blasphemous sinner. He's the worst person ever, and let's murder him, and everyone is going to believe it. So the same people that ushered him into this reality, this, this celebrity thing that he had going on, are about to kill him because they're going to number him with the transgressors. So if that's going to be true of Jesus, isn't that going to be true of his followers? So he's telling his boys, look, get ready, because they're about to murder me, and they're not going to like you at all. The people that received you well a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, are about to all turn on you. Everyone that provided for you is about to persecute you. Everyone that loved you is about to hate you. Everyone that received you is about to kick you out. And what they are going to do to me through murder, they're going to want to do to you. So get some money, get some food, get a cloak. Get a sword. Get ready. Things are about to change. But now, and he starts this off, there's no reason, there's no detail that he has to remind them of Luke 9 and 10 other than reminding, hey, you remember when I provided for you back in? I'm going to provide for you now. Remember the time that you could trust me with nothing? You, you have to trust me here because things are about to get really, really bad. Are, are you ready for this? 
And here's how they respond. Verse 38. Look, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Now, both sides of this get lost in translation, right? So look, look, here are two swords. First, the disciples are not taking Jesus' words at heart. They're ready for battle. And they're probably stealing, right? I mean, this is in the furnished upper room that none of them own, that someone is letting them use for this Passover feast. So what they're doing is they're going through all the drawers, they're rummaging around this house and going, there's a sword, there's a sword, let's do this thing. And you see, you read Jesus' word going, it is enough. Like, yes, that's good. But what he's actually doing, he's referring back to Deuteronomy 3.26 and says it this way, but the Lord was angry with me because of you, it would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. So this, that, that is enough is not of like, oh yeah, you're good, bro. Let's go. You want to pick up some Jimmy John's on the way? It was uh, like, I'm tired of you guys. I'm so frustrated. You're not listening to me and it's enough. Let's, let's just, I'm done with this. Let's go. Because all that he was trying to warn them, they just totally missed and we see this fast forward just in a couple hours. Peter's going to take one of these swords and cut the guard's ear off. So they totally missed what was happening. It is enough. So what is Jesus getting at? What does this have to do with them? What does this have to do with us? Flip now with me to John 15. Because Luke uh, doesn't record all that takes place in that upper room. And I think there's some huge clues that will happen. This is a parallel version of the same time in the same room that the Gospel of John records. And I think it's needed for us. I think it's needed for us. Because the disciples had no clue what was coming they had no clue. I mean, they were the who's who. They were Jesus' right guy when everyone loved Jesus. But when everyone turns on Jesus, they weren't ready for it. And Jesus goes so far into the truth here. And these are going to be some bigger chunks, but I think it's good for our soul to read these. So as he's trying to develop trust in his disciples, the first thing that he's saying is, trust me, expect hostility. Hospi nope. Hostility. Thank you. Expect hospitality is the total opposite of what's going to happen here. I'm just so Southern, it's like, oh, everyone's hospitable. Nope. Hostility. Hostility, what? I just, no, not even close. Jeez. Expect hostility. 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 Thanks, Laura, for the laugh. John 15, let's just read it so I can stop saying that word, hostility. John 15, we're going to pick it up in verse 18. This is Jesus in the same time, at the same table, talking to the same disciples. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. All right, so we start to see the shift happening, right? Before you were received, everything, everyone took care of every need that you had. But if the world hates you, understand it hated me first. Verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but the world hates you. Remember, verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, as a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If it had not been an account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me, verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had done if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, 
they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. Verse 25. But the word that is written in the laws must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. So he's telling his disciples in this upper room, you've got to expect hostility. He's telling us today as Christians, we've got to expect hostility. Now, how many people are people pleasers, right? Like just cannot stand, cannot go to sleep if people don't like you. Anyone? I mean, I just confess that's not me. So I need to know, it's anyone else in this room like drives you crazy. Okay. So what, what he's saying is what Jesus is laying out is, look, this all is bigger than you. This has nothing to do with you. They're going to hate you because they hate me and because you follow me. Now they hate you. Expect this. Get ready for this because this is a category the disciples had not seen. I mean, we see over and over and over. I grew up, I did Young Life, which I know this row right here does Young Life. The thing that Young Life taught me the most is everywhere Jesus was, there was a Cool, young life, thanks for leaving me high and dry. A crowd, geez, keep talking, you're fine. Man, do y'all not see that anymore? Now you're not talking again. Cool, let's just keep going. Forget young life, burn it to the ground. Everywhere Jesus was, there was a crowd. That's what I always learned through young life, not through leaders like these, but actual leaders that talked back and forth. <laughs> Just messing, man. Um, so what was happening all throughout every week of Jesus' ministry was growing, and because of that, there was more and more crowds because people wanted to get close to him. People wanted to see him. People wanted to receive him, and by that, they wanted to receive his disciples. They wanted to take care of his boys. But he's saying, look, this world is changing. Now that I've convicted them of sin, they're going to hate me because they hate you. So Christians, if Jesus is telling that to them, how can we not think that that's going to happen to us? that we have to expect hostility. Now look, I, I just want to take a, a, sep, a second for, uh, oh, blah, 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 come over here for a second, because I think Christians in America far too often beat the drum of persecution and hostility when it's not even there. I know my rights, like, okay, sure, fine. But all throughout Scripture is promised to us, as Daniel even read today, that persecution, the hostility, the suffering is going to happen. So when it does, our response shouldn't be uh, anger and fighting, but it should be, yeah. I, I knew that was coming because Scripture has promised me of that. And we see this happen through Acts. I mean, Acts 7 and 8, we see the first massive revival break out in Christianity. And what did it come from? The stoning of Stephen. So through murder, through true suffering and hostility, came the first massive spread of the gospel. So we should expect Jesus saying, listen, it has nothing to do, don't take this personal. Expect hostility because if they hate me, they're going to hate you. Church, we should expect hostility. If they hate him, they're going to hate us and they don't know why. They can't put their thumb on it because they don't know this God that they all of a sudden hate. So we should expect then this hostility. But Jesus doesn't stop there. John 16, 4, he also says, trust me, because I'm not leaving you alone. I'm going to send you the Spirit. John 16, pick it up in verse 4. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask, where are you going? But because I've said these things, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. 
So it is to our advantage. He's saying, trust me, I need to go so that you can have the Spirit. I'm sending a helper that's better than what I can do. Now, just all cards on the table, I've always struggled with that, and I still struggle with that. I mean, if I could have the Spirit in me or Jesus standing next to me, I would think I would choose Jesus standing next to me. But here's the reality, here's the pride that's caught up in that. Jesus is a man, fully man, fully God. He's in one place. So selfishly, I would rather have Jesus part of me. But on a global perspective, how great is it that the Spirit is in all of us as Christians? The thing that binds us together concerning truth, concerning righteousness, concerning judgment, illuminating the truth of God's word in our heart is what the Spirit does. He is, uh, CS, or I think Spurgeon says this, that he's the shy spirit, that all he's ever doing is pointing all of his affection, all of our glory to Jesus, not himself. So I could hop on this rabbit trail of charismatic craziness, but just remember the spirit's main role is pushing us back to God, not to himself. So he's saying, it's, it's to your advantage. Trust me, I'm leaving here. But it's to your advantage because I'm sending the Spirit. It's actually better for you. Out of my love for you, trust me, this is better for you. So trust me that you're going to expect hostility. Trust me that I'm going to give you the Spirit. And trust me that you're to expect confusion. John 16 puts it this way. John 16, 16. A little while you will see me no longer... And again, in a little while, you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that you've said to us? A little while, you'll see me, and then a little while, you will not see me, because I'm going to the Father. So they're saying, what does this mean, a little while? We do not know what you're talking about. I mean, I just love the brutal honesty. Like, Jesus, what are you talking, we don't understand what you're saying, uh, Matt Thomas over here who led worship uh, preached last Advent for us, and he said something that's just been ingrained in my mind, that if we understand everything about God, then we are God ourselves. That if we could fully comprehend everything that God is doing, doesn't that make us then God? So he's telling his disciples, look, this, this is going to get confusing. It's going to get messy, but you have to trust me that I have a plan. I mean, we throw around Jeremiah 29, 11, like it's just going out of style. But do we actually trust? Do we actually believe? Because if you're anything like me, when things just kind of go a, a little confusing, go a little sideways, we curse heavens, we close our fists, we get so angry with what, what could God possibly be doing out of this? But he's telling us, look, expect confusion. Verse 20, truly I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. That there's going to be moments of confusion where you will weep or you will sorrow. You will not understand what's happening. But trust me, I'm going to take this confusion and turn it into joy. Do we trust him in those moments? When things look like it's not in our control, in those moments, can we actually trust him? And the last thing we see, John 16, 33. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Trust Jesus because he's never lost control for a second. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, that through these last hours and days of Jesus's life, it's going to look like he's lost all control and power. 
It's going to look like things are just going crazy, that there's no way that he would actually orchestrate this. But we see in Acts 4, the apostles say, no, no, all of this was predestined to take place. You didn't take Jesus' life. He willingly laid it down for his friends. All that was prophesied in Isaiah 53 have come true, that Jesus was not for a moment confused. He was not hurt. He was not belittled through any of this. He was in control of all of it. John 16, 33, take heart. I have overcome the world. And Jesus goes right into John 17, right? The high priestly prayer, praying over all of us, praying over his disciples, going, man, don't let them get confused through this. Don't let them lose heart through this process, that I am in control. I am responsible for all of this around us. Does Jesus give us more than we can handle? Absolutely. Does Jesus give himself more than he can handle? Absolutely not. So even through all this chaos and confusion, we have to trust him that he is still on his throne, that he is still taken care of because he has overcome the world. Now, as we're reading this, the contextualization that's taking place going, okay, but, but what does this have to do with us and Nalanaga in 2019? What, is, what does trust have to do with any of this with Jesus? Because he's not about to die. We know the rest of the story. We know that he was raised from the dead. We're, we're not experiencing a bunch of persecution, hostility. What, what's happening here? What does this mean for us? And as I was praying through this and wrestling through this, I could understand why better men than I have skipped over this passage that haven't preached through this, but the Lord just kept convicting me of this. Because I'm, I'm guilty of this as many one else. I love to make fun of the disciples. I love to make fun of anybody. But specifically, I love to make fun of the disciples. Because those are fools. Those guys did so many things wrong over and over and over again. But through this conversation, through Jesus' frustration, it is enough, guys, you're killing me. Even though they might not have fully understood what was happening, they followed Jesus out of that room. They followed Jesus out of the room into the garden. When Jesus was arrested and betrayed, they followed Jesus from the garden to watch him be crucified. They left the room church because they trusted him. And when I look at all that the church is in America, my heart starts to break. When I look at like, who we are, I think if we inserted ourselves in this story, we're still sitting in the Passover room waiting for Jesus to come back and get us because we don't actually trust him. So we're going to come to Sunday services. We're going to do what's safe because that doesn't require a bunch of trust. And we're going to go to MC, even though that's crazy and that's a little, but, but we don't, that's still a safe environment. It doesn't require a bunch of trust. And we're going to do Bible study after Bible study. We're going to fill our whole calendar, everything that we have with a bunch of safe, good-looking Bible studies. Evangelism is great, but it's not for me because we don't trust Jesus. Everyone else should go on a mission trip or go overseas, but, but it's not for me because I don't trust Jesus. That we're still sitting in that room, church that we didn't faithfully follow him out of there, that those instructions that he said, get your cloak, get your sword, get your knapsack, get your money bag ready, let's go, we go, ah, but I'm pretty comfortable right here. That is the epitome of the American church. That's where we sit, that's where we are, still in the upper room, not following Jesus because that requires a trust that we don't have. So what then do we do with this? Why aren't we trusting? Why aren't we following? Why didn't we leave the upper room with him? A life of trust looks like a life of obedience. 
So we get to start to work that way back. Are we being obedient what Jesus has called us to do? If not, it's rooted in a lack of trust every single time. A lack of trust leads to a lack of obedience. Now look, I'm not saying that every, I mean, there's a student in here, I don't know if I'm supposed to share this publicly, but there's a student in here that this summer is going to one of the most unreached people groups of all time, going into a hostile environment, and who knows what's going to happen while he's there. Is that incredible? Yeah, praise God. This dude encourages me and supports me all the time. I'm so proud of this brother. Does that mean that every single one of us has to go follow him into this environment? No, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying, do you hear the voice of God in your soul and are you doing anything with it? Do you read the voice of God in your scriptures and do anything with it? Obedience is a lack of trust. A lack of obedience is a lack of trust. So if we're not, that means we're not being obedient to what he's calling us to. That we're afraid, that we're fearful. And look, I, I get it. I'm not trying to say that's not a scary thing. I think people all the time look at people on the stage like, oh, that's a scary thing. Like, like no, this is a very comfortable thing. If you come to my house, I'm going to talk to you the entire time you're there until I get tired and then I'm going to fall asleep on the couch. And if you come over to my house before I'm ready, my parents are probably going to be off, so be careful. I think I can get some amens from this side of the room. MC got a little awkward this week, I'm just going to admit. Right? But seriously... The, the obedience for all of us looks totally different. For some, it looks like going to an unreached people group. For some, it looks like standing on the stage proclaiming the gospel. But for all of us, it looks like getting to know our neighbor. For all of us, it looks like can take care of the least of these. For all of us, it looks like grabbing a baby bottle on the way out, taking care of the widows and the orphans. For all of us, a true undefiled religion is this. For all of us, go home this afternoon and read the book of James and understand what obedience looks like. For all of us, we've got to get to the root of the fear to get out of that upper room. Because for all the nonsense that the disciples walked through, at least they trust Jesus enough to follow him out of that upper room and go back into the world instead of staying in our safe place. So it happens almost regularly with four kids. I'm constantly pushing them to do something I know that they're going to enjoy. So this summer, my oldest, Auburn, we're trying to get her out skiing um, behind a boat. And I get it, that's intimidating, and Lake Lanier is disgusting, and you can't see. And I understand all the fear that was going on in her mind. But instead of trying to convince her that everything's safe, I get her and I pull her close to me and say, does Daddy love you? Is Daddy going to take care of you? Do you think Daddy's going to let anything happen to you? Now, the moment she falls in, I didn't, I don't, you don't know how fast a fat boy can swim until I'm going to save my daughter after she falls in. Just come watch. I'm mean, talking like free Willie going over there to get her. <laughs> right? But I pull her in close and I say, listen, Daddy loves you. Trust me. You're going to be okay. Just do it. Just try it. Because what I know, what she doesn't know, is on the other side of that fear is the greatest joy she's ever going to experience. I mean, getting up and skiing behind a boat and just cruising through the lake is the, one of the greatest joys she'll experience in life, but she doesn't know that. She can't see that. So instead of lecturing her or belittling her, I'm drawing her close and saying, if you trust me, you'll just do this, because I know where this is going to lead. Trust me, and I feel like what the Spirit has been doing for me this week is drawing me in close and saying, just trust me. I know you're afraid. There's greater joy on the other side of this that you cannot comprehend. Trust me. It's okay to be afraid. 
but trust me, do I love you? Have I provided for you? Have I taken care of you? Then trust me and walk in this obedience. And so for us in this room this morning, where is it that we're not trusting him? Where is it that in our souls we're still sitting in the upper room just waiting for everything to work out perfectly instead of following him into obedience? But, but maybe it's the other side. Maybe the church and Christianity and the gospel has burnt you. And so maybe the plea isn't to walk in obedience. Maybe the plea is to come back. But trust me, coming back into church world, getting involved in the MC, getting involved in the DNA, signing up for the leadership pipeline, just come back to the fold. Trust me, there's greater joy on the other side than you could ever know or comprehend. Just come back. But what does trust look like for you? And what does trust look like for me? And where are we refusing to walk into that because of the fear that we have? What does this mean for us? I, Jesus quoted Isaiah 53 earlier, that he was numbered with the transgressors, but here's the rest of 53:12. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercessor, intercession for the transgressors. So even though he was numbered as a transgressor, in that moment he bore all the sin for us. So that in him we become the righteousness of God. So the cross asks us to trust him. The empty grave proves that we can trust him. So the question this morning is, do we? That we can look back in the text and see that there's no reason we cannot trust him. The cross asks us, the empty grave proves it. Where is it that we don't trust him? So this morning, as we get ready to take communion, that's the question we're going to ask ourselves as we're examining our hearts. Have we left the upper room? Or are we still sitting where it's safe and comfortable? Can we trust him or not? Does your life look like a life of obedience rooted in trust, or does it look like a life of disobedience rooted in uh, untrust? So as we examine our hearts this morning as Christians through communion, Let's ask ourselves, let's trust the Holy Spirit to speak conviction and truth into our souls and figure out where it is that we're not trusting him. So I'm going to pray for us and then communion will be open and we will respond through worship. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your truth. We're grateful for your word. And we're grateful that we can trust you. There's no reason why we can't. But you've never given us a moment where we have not been able to trust you. I know that times can look confusing. But God, would you forgive us for sitting in that upper room and not following you out? God, would you forgive us for not being obedient? Father, let us not focus on the obedience, but let us focus on the reason why we're being disobedient. Because we can't trust you. We aren't trusting you. Father, we've seen you prove yourself faithful over and over and over again. That it's not that we need another sign. It's not that we need a miracle. It's not that we need some uh, crazy thing to happen so that we can finally trust you. We just need to lay down our pride, lay down our fear, and trust you. 
the one that holds the universe together, the ones that created everything, and the one that will come back and redeem the world for himself, you we can trust. We put our trust in everything else other than you, Father. Would you forgive us from that? Father, this morning, as we take communion, as we examine our hearts, would you convict us? Would you show us where we don't trust? Would you show us where we are being disobedient because we trust our way over your way? We think we can take care of our own joy, that we can't really trust you with it. That we know that you're a good father, we just don't believe it. God, we know that the deeper waters you're leading us to are going to be incredibly scary. And the reason that we haven't followed you there is because it's a massive leap of faith for us. That the disciples followed you out of that room, not fully understanding, but somewhat comprehending that life was going to get really hard for them. Father, thank you for their example. God, we know that obedience doesn't always look the most fun, but that is where true joy is found. God, would the the old hymn just wreck our souls this morning that take the world, but give us you, give us Jesus. There's nothing better for us than you. If there's any lie in our hearts that that want us to believe otherwise, would you convict us of that? Would you take that away from us this morning? And so church, as we pray, as we consider, as we examine our hearts before communion, where is God asking you to be obedient today? And don't run, don't hide, embrace it is we can trust him, the author and perfecter of our faith. So church, let's get out of that upper room. Let's be a church that is sent. Let's be a church that is visible in our community because we're being so obedient to our Father. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.